The Coach's Roundtable is brought to you by Between the Lines. Between the Lines offers online training with current minor league affiliates from the comfort of your own home through online technology. With their coaching, watch your skills and money increase due to no longer needing to drive to get training. For more information, go to betweenthelines.pro. The Coach's Roundtable is also brought to you by Sequencer. Sequencer is a new product that uses simulation modeling to create a data-driven solution for a line of creation. Input your player stats, simulate thousands of different lineups with a couple clicks, and get feedback on which is most effective at scoring runs. Visit Sequencer for a free trial. That's S-E-Q-N-Z-R dot com. And feel free to shoot a note to at Sequencer on Twitter with any questions. They're also partnering with Driveline Baseball to add to their world-class product offering. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Coaches Roundtable podcast. Today, I'm with two coaches who both coach for the Indiana Twins, and they're going to break down all things Indiana Twins and just talk about how unique and, and just how incredible their organization is and how they build their players in all different ways. Talk about so much more than just baseball, but Enough from me. Let's get to know these two guys, and we'll start with you first, Coach Hassey. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to now. Uh, well, I'll try to be brief. Um, so I was a left-handed pitcher in high school and college, played Division II. Um, I, knew I always, knew I always wanted to coach, dating back to just being in the backyard with neighbors, and I had a um, neighbor named Spencer, and I would help him out with pitching lessons because my brother helped me out with pitching lessons, and I just always enjoyed it. Never knew really what I wanted to do, quote unquote, in college or anything like that, but uh, knew I wanted to coach and there was no degree for that. So I just, you know, got a degree in teaching, which I'm not doing anymore, but it actually really helped me as a coach. So fast forward to my first job after college was, uh, or my first coaching gig was with a little league team, um, pretty close to where I lived. And then I moved to Indianapolis back in 2010, took a job as a high school pitching coach started doing some lessons, worked with one travel team for a summer, then um, kind of left that position, ended up joining up with the Indiana Twins. Fast forward to 2014, it was the year I got married, um, so that was a pretty busy year. I was doing lessons on my own, I was coaching in high school, I was uh, with the Indiana Twins. I came on just as, as an instructor and a 17U pitching coach, and it was a heck of a ride. It was probably six or seven days of baseball, pretty much that entire first year of marriage. Um, after that, I guess fast forward a couple of years, I ended up becoming a member on the board with the Twins, which I still am, and kind of took over the role of our lead instructor for pitching. Um, now the I've got the role of pitching coordinator with the organization. Um, Jason has been, as the president, a a gracious host to have me and work, you know, allowed me to work alongside him and help out with, you know, whether it's planning out our performance training or our pitching or whatever it is. Um, so I get to do a ton of that and even just some operation stuff now being on the board. So there's a lot going on there. And then um, I guess just where I'm at now, I'm trying to always network, I guess. So we've got the thing going with Indiana Twins and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but the big thing, especially right now with um, the pandemic, is just trying to continue to strengthen that network with whether it's going to events or reaching out to people or getting to know people. Uh, we just started a show for the twins um, where we're doing it on, we're uploading the videos to YouTube, we're going live on Instagram and Facebook, and just really utilizing the network that we've created over the years between Jason and myself. And that that's currently where I am now. Um, we're doing three shows a, a week. Plus the editing process, I'm by no means a, an expert at all this, but it's been fun. It's been humbling um, in many ways, but really blessed to have the opportunity to talk with a lot of guys, including yourself, Joel. We're glad to have you, Coach Hassey. And what about you, Coach Climore, being the president of the Indiana Twins? Tell us a little bit about that and how you got there. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a full-time job. Um, it started uh, almost 20 years ago, 18 years ago to be exact. Um, I started, I, I was working a second shift job, real job, and uh, basically was leaving that and getting a daytime job like most people and knew I wanted to get into coaching. So um, I joined up with the Edgewood 
Bulldogs travel program, which I had played Little League at Edgewood as a kid, so there was some familiarity there. Uh, became the travel director there uh, for a few years and then decided I wanted bigger and better, a um, little bit more control over the player development aspect of it. So I uh, started doing some research and ended up creating the Indiana Twins or Indiana Irish, I'm sorry, back in uh, 2007 with, with another gentleman. And uh, we ran that for five years. And um, again, just wanted to take it to another level. So in 2012, uh, we started the Indiana Twins. Um, and it's just been growing like crazy ever since. We recently, in the last couple of years, left our uh, original facility uh, near University of Indianapolis, and now we're down um, in the Martinsville, Mooresville area. We've got nine and a half acres of land and three buildings, um, three fields. So we, we've really grown in the you know, eight years we've been an organization. Um, obviously, the organization's focused on player development, uh, which well, I'm sure we'll get into later on in the podcast as far as how we roll that out, but um, that that's where we're at now. I mean, running the running the twins is a uh, it's a full time job. It's uh, uh, a lot more than just baseball. Obviously, that's the baseball's the fun part of it, I guess. But uh, yeah, it's uh, a lot of stuff going on all the time, and uh, I love it. It's it, it's very enjoyable to me. It's um, something I've been doing for a long time. I look forward to getting up every day and exactly whatever is thrown at me. So um, just uh, it's a passion of mine, and uh, we're trying to kind of pioneer some new things in the travel world. So. Awesome. We're glad to have you guys on, as you guys do an incredible job with the Indiana Twins. And I know that when Coach Hassey reached out to me, he wanted to talk about just the uniqueness of the organization. And Coach Hassey, if you want to speak on that uniqueness, we would love to hear it. Yeah, so when I was coaching at the high school level, um, one of our players was with the Indiana Twins, and it was actually, I found out probably three or four years later, that that player's dad had told Jason, hey, you know, you got to talk to this guy. He seems to kind of know what he's talking about or be really interested and loves the game. He's good kind of in the pitching realm. So Jason reached out to me, got me involved, and I mean, we got, we hit it off right away. He just said, oh, you know, I see who you're following on Twitter and that you're active on Twitter and following all these guys. You know, this is back in 2014 when um, it was kind of the earlier stages of Twitter baseball being kind of big. And so the fact that he could connect with me on that level, I really, I didn't know anybody in baseball that was on Twitter. I didn't, at least locally, I didn't have any friends that were doing it. I didn't play with any guys that um, were on Twitter actively. So it was just this whole new realm so the fact that he had connected with me on that point I was like oh this seems legit so let me kind of see what they got going on and he had actually you know invited me to kind of um oh what's the word I'm looking for shadow their uh camp that they had coming on I was like oh that's cool he said yeah we got Ron Wolforth with the Texas Baseball Ranch coming it's like no kidding I was like I know exactly who that is so I jumped at that it was a weekend clinic um, I'd found out that they had done it a few different years and he was coming back. So I was really excited about that. And I'm like, man, this is legit. This is what I want to be a part of. I mean, this is what I've been searching for. So, I mean, cause at that time I was trying to learn as much as I possibly could online and read and whether it's grabbing anatomy book, anatomy books, or just trying to follow whoever I could. So to get involved in that, I was like, all right, this is, this is it. So then to come to find out that, you know, they were have a, an off season program, there's clinics, there's camps, there's it's kind of evolved over the years, but I was like, there's just so much going on in here from player development standpoint that I just have to be a part of this. So I wasn't, like I said, I was instructing multiple days there, plus doing lessons on the side, you know, fast forward a couple of years. And Jason basically told me, Hey, I'd love if you didn't coach high school. So you could spend more time with us. He said, I can't tell you to do that, but would love it. And also I'd love for you to not be doing all these other lessons on the side so you can really come and help us. I said, well, you know, I'm making an income over here and plus this. And he said, basically, I'll match it. And he really wanted me. So the guy's always been in my corner and has always opened up his arms to let me do whatever I've wanted, basically, as long as I'm putting the effort. And 
um, show up and do what I should do the right thing. But no, it's just, there's, it's just so dynamic. There's just so much going on. I know Jason will talk about it, but I was like, wow, they got a catching camp. They got, they've got pitching camp. They've got performance training. They've obviously got their teams and everything, but um, we're all trying to teach the latest and the greatest. I'm like, this is, this is fantastic. So I just love the uniqueness from that standpoint that no other organizations are really doing that, at least around here that we know of, um, just to that extent. And that was back, like I said, six years ago too. And Coach Climore, you being the president, what's helped you make that uniqueness and what's the direction you want this organization to go with? So, I mean, the first part of that question, kind of like where this whole idea came from and, and all that was when I first started coaching um, in the Edgewood organization, I just saw a, a major gap. Um, like, I had heard of travel baseball, uh, but I hadn't seen it. Um, so, what I heard and what I thought I would see is not what the reality was. Uh, it was basically kids were given uniform and they were playing tournaments every weekend, but there was no really um, baseball education tied into any of the programs that I was witnessing. So that's kind of what hit me, and I was like, well, travel baseball should be unique. It should be elite. It should be um, you know, an investment for parents that they get a return on. Um, and so that, that's kind of how I saw it. Um, so that's kind of what led me into the direction of changing things. And, and, and that's probably the thing that I'm personally the most proud of with not just my journey, but the Twins' journey, is that we really have changed the state of travel baseball in Indiana. And that's what I set out to do. Um, I think we put some pressure on other organizations to do some of the things that we're doing. Um, I know for a fact that those other organizations are being asked, um, you know, to do some of the things that we're doing. And so in response to those questions, they've had to step up their game. At the end of the day, I think that's made all of travel baseball in Indiana better. I'm, I'm really proud that we had a hand in that. Um, but at the end of the day, it was just about trying to help kids create a passion for the game of baseball. Um, that's really what my ultimate goal was, is how do I take something that I love? Um, when I say I love baseball, like <laughs> it's, it's a very deep passion that's been a lifelong passion of mine. So how do I take the passion that I have and create an environment where kids can come in, they can get better at the game, they can grow their passion for the game, and hopefully teach them a lot of stuff about life that they can then use outside of the game of baseball um, to make them successful, good human beings. And that was kind of the, you know, the way we tied all of it together. So, I mean, that, that's kind of where it all uh, evolved. Um, and, you know, now it's just become a monster. Um, the, it, you know, we have 180 kids in the program and uh, 190-some hours of stuff that we offer each kid for the fees that they pay. Um, it's, it's crazy. We could give probably four or five shows on, on all the stuff that we do in the offseason. Um, that's really what the, the driver was in all of this. Um, and uh, I mean, hopefully that answered your question, but I, I could talk a long time about the, uh, the, the evolution and the, the vision and, and, and how we took that journey. But um, it's, it, it's something I'm really proud of. And Coach Hassey, I'll ask you this because you are the pitching coordinator for the organization. What does the offseason look like you look like for you working with your pitchers? Yeah, so it, it's, you know, as Jason said, it's evolved over the years. Um, but from kind of its basic foundation, we try to assess guys, get video capture of them um, starting in mid-October, kind of get them introduced to what we're doing. It's more of kind of uh, build the foundation from a movement standpoint, get the guys to understand some of the basic movements within the pitching delivery, um, make sure they're doing some foundational exercises, some of our... I guess you could say arm care type things, focusing on, 
like just just real the basic stuff of you know when you're going to play catch you know have a purpose when you're doing long toss make sure you're throwing with the intent to actually throw the ball hard um and then we we do break it down to some mechanical things and we're trying to evolve those all the time too but so it progresses week to week which with you know we're going to cover this type of movement or type of mechanic uh the next week we're going to review it we're going to go over the next one um because it's it's unique because we've got you know so many different guys in there in different ages and we've got multiple instructors and coaches helping out but again it's got a, a pretty good progression and then it, it's all built up so that you know anywhere from one to at sometimes three times a week for guys if they do lessons or they work on things in practice but at least once a week where they're in there to get exposed to all the movements and all the exercises and all that and then when they come back from winter break back from school there's just a few more weeks of review you know we start going over pickoffs pitch types different learning you know different types of pitches depending on kind of what type of pitcher they are and then we really really hammer their pitch counts so i think it's like beginning of february we try to basically track it out i think it's about eight or nine weeks it might be a few less but we basically kind of backward chain and say okay we want these guys to be leaving throwing at least 60 pitches so our last progression is 30 pitches one inning and 30 pitches a second inning um we're trying to forecast that that would be the most amount of workload that they would have in an inning um time frame uh but the weeks before that so from 30 30 the week before that would be 20 20 20 so it's three innings of 20 pitches um, and we start them with 15 pitch innings. So they go 15, 20, the next, so that'd be the first two weeks. The third week they're at 20, 20, then they go, uh, 20, 20, or no, it's 15, 15, 15. So it's just a slow progression to work up their pitch count. The coaches have to track it, um, for each team. The instructors have to track it. We have spreadsheets to be able to track all their pitch counts. If they miss a week, they have to repeat. If they miss two weeks, they have to go back a week and all the while we're monitoring how they feel before they start their bullpen, after each inning of their bullpen, to really prioritize um, the health and arm strength and ability to go in and perform once the tournaments start. And for our high school guys, we want them to go into high school being more than ready because we know there's time constraints with the high school coaches. So we kind of look at it as a benefit to the high school programs that we're able to get the guys that we know they're really constrained on times and and they can't really see their guys as much. So um, we're wanting to help. And we always default to the high school programs. If, you know, you're throwing your bullpens with your high school team, that takes precedent over us. Uh, we're going to help you any way we can. If you need to get some other side work in or some off speed or any other little things or some workout stuff or whatever it is, we're there to help. But we're really trying to supplement what the uh, high school programs are doing in those weeks leading up to their season. And what about you, Coach Climore, as the president and someone who works with some other staff? What does the offseason look like for you working with the Indiana Twins? Um, I've got my hands in almost, well, probably everything. Um, I'm the head hitting guy, so that's probably where um, most of my time is spent as far as on the floor working with athletes. Um, in our program, but I help with the design of all the programs, so our testing program. Um, I've pretty much gotten hands off with the pitching program because Scott does, does such a great job with that. I mean, him and I, can, you know, we, we talk about it all the time, but um, it's something that uh, he's ran with. But all the other programs, I'm pretty involved in, maybe the exception of performance training, which Scott kind of uh, heads that up as well because that's kind of more his wheelhouse than it is mine. But um, yeah, my involvement is um, a lot with with all of the things: our baseball IQ, our mental training, our catching, all of our outdoor fall program stuff that we do. Obviously, the hitting. So um, all the stuff that we do, I, I try to um, at least lend a little bit of suggestion, or um, I'll help whoever's kind of running that, uh, make sure that it's progressive in nature, cutting edge as far as information goes, uh, that nobody's getting bored, everyone's staying busy. So um, the program development and the program 
um, creation that we do is a lot of fun to me. It's something I enjoy doing. Um, it's something that you know, Scott and I spend a lot of time talking through uh, pretty much year-round at this point. Uh, and yeah, the thing with our twin stamp that, um, I don't know if this will surprise people or not, but it's every year it's different. It would be really easy for us to throw something together and just do it every year. Um, and there's days where we probably wish we would do that, but we don't. Um, we're constantly evolving it. We're constantly changing it. Um, it's We're trying to make it better, get better information. Uh, we're trying to become better coaches, better instructors, uh, as far as assessing athletes initially, um, trying to individualize more. I mean, we're just constantly trying to take it to the next level. So there's a lot of um, maintenance that goes on with it, uh, both during and and in the preparation for it. So that, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm more of a supervisory, I guess, um, on most things. But on the hitting, I'm definitely on the floor working with the guys. And, and, and I really enjoy that. That's kind of my, my chance to still do baseball stuff. Cool. Cool stuff, guys. And so let's translate more into the how you guys do stuff questions. And I'll ask this to you first, Coach Hesse. As the pitching coordinator for the Indiana Twins, how do you guys utilize technology to help improve your players? So it's, I guess there's a couple of different things to touch on there. Um, the technology that we use is going to be the radar gun. I mean, that's the simplest form of technology. It gives instant feedback. And we've kind of debunked the myth uh, for a lot of the parents that maybe don't um, see the benefit of the radar gun. If they're worried about, oh, you know, don't try to throw too hard and that type of stuff. Um, you're going to hurt your arm if you're always trying to throw too hard. And like I said, with how we're tracking everything, how the players feel and all that and getting feedback from them, um, it's really good feedback for us to see how guys are progressing. Are they throwing harder? Are they throwing the same? Is there something else that we can work on? Um, is there differences in their pitches? If it's, you know, two fastballs that are supposed to be both four seam, and one's four miles an hour different, is it because they were trying to locate? And we can have those conversations and really kind of speed up the development because we have feedback instantly right there and it's you know at a lot lower cost than some of the uh, tools out there but then also if we see a consistent um, downtick in velocity it can also open up opportunity to have a conversation on hey are you feeling okay is there something going on you told me you're great but your velocity's down we've had times where players are like oh yeah well my arm's not feeling really great and that's really good feedback and we need to know that so if we don't have a radar going up then we're not able to understand what's going on other than just seeing the ball move and the naked eye can't always tell from sitting behind the pitcher a three, four mile an hour consistent difference that maybe would have never shown up before. Um, and then other times it's been where, Hey coach, I've had coaches come up to me and say, Hey, he's, do you think there's something going on? He's three or four miles an hour off. And I said, well, I just noticed that you were, you know, taking the radar from about 15 feet to the left that, you know, there's kind of a, I don't know what the exact degrees are, but at some point there's, um, a little bit of error when you're coming off to the side, not directly behind. So it opens up an opportunity there. Um, we've tinkered with some of the other things like, you know, last year we got a diamond connect space ball. We weren't able to work that in as much, but that's something on the forefront. Now there's the pitch logistics ball. I think that's what it's called or a pitch logic ball. Um, and then just the, the other part of it is just financial. So we are a nonprofit organization. We're not out to make a ton of money. We're out to make it as good of a baseball player as we can, but, with having just upgraded facilities from 7,000 square feet to, you know, over 15,000 square feet combined with the diamonds and everything, we just understand that there's so much that we can do before we invest in a $5,000 piece of equipment from a player development standpoint that we don't need that yet. We are getting to that point and we want to be there. We will be there. And we've got, you know, a good network with people that we can reach out to and call when we need that. Uh, one of our former coaches is actually one of the, sales reps for rap soda so we know those guys really well we know the technology we've you know been around it we're exposed to it we just haven't made that leap financially because of the situation that we're in with having just made that transition um to the larger facility so i mean we i, I guess another piece of technology we do use is track through driveline baseball we've really um, dove into it on the pitching side because there's a lot of upfront work to get 
180 athletes input into the system. If we're doing assessments to put those into there, get all the programming built out. Um, it's well worth all the upfront work though, because there's just so much you can do with it. And then the, the ability to integrate all your technology that you're using, track guys, um, how they feel. So we don't have to use spreadsheets that are scattered all over the Google drive and hard to find. So it's all in one place. So we're really excited to see that continue to grow. And we use that every off season for the last couple of years. What about you, Coach Climore? How do you use technology not only as the president, but as someone who is in charge of the hitting instruction at your organization? Um, video, high-speed video is probably uh, on the hitting side of things we use the most. We use the radar gun as well for extra velocities. Uh, we have tinkered with the blast um, sensor and even that when it was around. Uh, I want to get, you know, a launch monitor system, whether it's Hitchrack or Rapsodo or something along those lines to, to monitor a lot more stuff um, and get into some KVEF stuff. But like, like Scott was saying, that just from a financial standpoint, we don't um, collect a whole lot of extra money from our families to do things like that. So we're, we're trying to find ways to be creative to come up with that money uh, to get some more technology. Uh, we, well, Scott and I both would love to have all kinds of different technology options at our disposal. We just don't have those yet. So we've really relied on high-speed video, the radar gun. Um, I, I think one year, you know, we may have had a modus sleeve for pitching. We've, we've had blast sensors that we've had a few guys use and we've tinkered with some of that. but. For the most part, we're we're utilizing you know, high-speed video, and we do that with all the areas. So our catching program uses high-speed video. Obviously, our hitting and pitching areas use high-speed video. And then, you know, the radar gun. We've got two radar guns, um, just you know, stalker radar guns that we we use almost every day in camp, um, just for you know data collection and to get feedback on what the athlete's doing. So I wish I wish we could say that we're this high-tech, you know, million-dollar laboratory program, but we're not. We've had to kind of figure things out without the use of technology, which I think is, in the long term, going to make us better once we do get the technology, because we we did kind of have to take that journey through old school, I guess. Um, so, yeah, we're excited to get all that stuff, just uh, not there yet. Cool stuff, guys. Coach Hassier, I'll ask you this. As someone who is a pitching coordinator instructor, you work with a lot of kids through pitching. What are some of the most common mechanical flaws that you see kids struggle with, and then how do you fix those flaws? Or what drills do you use to help them stop causing and doing those mechanical flaws? Number one is the back foot. Um, Lance Wheeler, who I just had on our show the other day, I mean, that guy is an incredible um, human being. I learned probably about five years ago from him to take a peek at the back foot. So I look at the back foot on every single one of our pitchers. And I started doing the hitting side. I would jump to the other building, the hitting building, and just kind of look at the back feet of our hitters and talk to Jason about it. But the number one thing, and there's, and there's more that we look at, but it's the back foot. I can't tell you how many guys, you know, whether it's they're hooking the rubber with their heel or hooking the rubber with their um, pinky toe, they're not hooking the rubber at all, but their foot still moves. As soon as the pitcher lifts his um, foot, so for a right-handed pitcher, as soon as he lifts his left foot, I'm looking at that right foot, his back foot, his back leg. If that thing wiggles, I just know it, it's telling an, an entire story within that one wiggle. Um, what that story is, it's going to be different for every player. And what that story ends up, you know, the end of that story, what it ends up being can be completely different. But for example... At leg lift, if the back foot starts to wobble toward the back and you can see space underneath the foot, then there's a chance that he has kind of taken his momentum towards second base, and now he has to overcome that. And because he went straight backward, he might be then going straight in a linear fashion and lack rotation when he goes down the mound, and he might not rotate as well. Um, same token if a guy um, lifts his front leg and then he's up on his toes, he could do two things because he's on his toes and he's more leaned forward again for a right-hander. 
He could be leaning more towards third base. He might be then landing more closed and closing himself off, which may be good or bad, but he, that might be why he's closing himself off when he finishes and rotates. Um, so if you see a guy, whoa, you, you seem to land really, really closed. And that, well, it could be because when he lifted his leg, it was because he was all on his toes. What's funny is that the same pitcher or the same looking foot with a heel in the air, all on your toes, all your weight forward, could be a guy that lands really wide open because his mind realizes, oh, we're falling towards third. We have to kind of counterbalance that. So they overcorrect and they end up opening up a ton and then they land way, way open. It's the same thing if they're too far into their heel, they could land open or close. So that is by far the biggest thing. And honestly, it's just awareness. And I can't tell you how many times I've told guys that and showed guys that and had them feel it that they still don't understand it. So without video, they don't see it. So, I mean, usually with the video we're talking to them about it, they get it. Um, and then it's just, it's, it's really old school drills where I just have them, Hey, put your foot down. And if they really can't get it, I'll have them take their shoes off. So they just have more foot awareness and feel into the ground. And I'll tell them, Hey, I want you to just lift your leg three times and looking at your foot and see if you can tell if it's moving or not. If you can't tell, then that's still an issue. Um, and the reason the foot moves could be a number of things. It be, could be because they have tight hips. It could be because their hips are swaying in one direction, forward, backward, first to third base, whatever it is. Um, it could be because they pulled a growing and their growing isn't that good. They, they could have incredibly mobile joints and they don't have much strength. So once they're on one leg, it's really difficult. So the reason for the foot wobbling is also something that we have to figure out as well. So we'll treat it a couple different ways. If it's in the off season early on, October, November, December, um, I'll kind of look back at their assessment and see, okay, this guy's really hypermobile. He's not very strong. I put him in a one leg, you know, Bulgarian split squat or something like that, or a lunge, and he can't seem to stabilize. Okay, this guy, even if I alert him of his back foot, he still just needs to do some exercises to work on stabilizing under one leg. Um, or if something's tight, then maybe it's something with mobility. But we're learning more and more as we keep diving into the body and how everything works that um, potentially, unless we can do some pretty invasive work from a movement standpoint, uh, a mobility standpoint, there might not be much a player can do even over a, you know a couple months as far as mobility goes. So then we have to kind of adjust the movement pattern or adjust the mechanics. So again, back with the back foot, if a player's tight and he's immobile and we're getting close to the season, or if we're just not confident that he's going to have the time or we're going to have the time to kind of adjust his hips, then we'll have him open up his foot. So instead of, again, for a righty, instead of having his entire foot flush with the rubber, we'll have him take his heel off the rubber, which then it is closer towards um, home plate or you could think your toes, instead of pointing straight at third, maybe they're kind of pointing now almost at the shortstop. Um, so that heel is now off the rubber. And what that does is allows for more freedom of range of motion in the back hip. So when they lift, it's just easier for them. Um, I, I, I explain it to guys, if you were to stand up and point your, so this is again for righties, point your right foot inward pretty far and then do a leg lift. And I ask them, does that feel comfortable? Does it feel normal? Well, they're like, no, well, it's, it's tight in my growing and right here, kind of in my, that area. I was like, well, that's the equivalent of someone who just has normal tightness in there. When they do a normal leg lift with their feet parallel. Um, so by opening up that heel, it opens up that hip joint and allows for more freedom of movement. And it's usually able to quiet down their back foot. And then from there, there's so many things that we can clean up. So it, whether it's momentum, whether it's rotation, uh, hip shoulder separation, forearm fly out, um, landing with a lead leg that's unstable. So many of those things that we do look at further down the chain, we don't touch on. And I tell our other instructors and our coaches, do not progress to any of those other dominoes until you've checked out that back foot. If that back foot is unstable, fixing anything or focusing on anything after that is just a recipe for disaster or it's a waste of time. And it's just not going to help that player because you're probably going to screw them up even more. Because some guys, it's amazing. You put them on video, you figure out their back foot, and everything else cleans up. So it's a domino effect, literally and figuratively. Um, that they just got that. So that's the biggest one. And if you want to know more, we can jump into those too. But kind of talked a lot about that one.
That was awesome stuff, Coach Cassie. And what about you, Coach Climore? Although you're the president, you still work with the hitters. What are some of the most common mechanical flaws you see with your players? Well, it's probably going to sound really similar to what Coach Cassie just said because um, the way the kinetic chain works, uh, without getting in a lot of you know, technical information there, but um, everything starts with the feet. And so that's the first thing we look at on the hitting side as well. Um, are they creating good ground force while their front foot's in the air? So with, with hitting and pitching, um, a lot can go really right and a lot can go really wrong while the front foot is in the air. So that's the first thing that we look for is to make sure that while their front foot is in the air, they're able to um, control their tempo. They're able to uh, control the forward moves, uh, not start the turn too quickly before the foot lands. So that's the first thing that we always look at. Now, um, like Coach Hassie was saying, we're very, um, we use the domino analogy a lot in our program. So typically with hitters, what you're going to find is things go really wrong during that forward move while the front foot's in the air. And a lot of times that does come back to the first domino, which is the back foot. Um, but typically what will happen is while the front foot's in the air, they're going to lose barrel control or they'll start to turn too early. Um, they'll loop the anchor with their back foot into the front foot touching down. Um, so those are kind of the main things that we see. But again, they all stem uh, not all, most of the time it stems from them not being able to create a good anchor with their back foot, which kind of unravels everything else too quickly. Um, so what you see on video is, you know, the, the top half flying open or they're starting to turn too quickly. And all of that stuff comes from just, you know, poor ground force and, and a poor anchor with their back foot. But we do a lot of drills to work on that. I mean, we spend probably, we have a 10-week mechanical program. Um, we probably spend three or four weeks of that 10-week uh, time frame working on the back foot, ground force, hip hinging, coiling, um, just getting the athlete to be really stable on their back foot so that the rest of the chain isn't affected by that. Um, there are things that happen, um, even with decent ground ground force, uh, with the forward move. That's kind of what we call the, the stride is the forward move. Um, there's things that can happen there that we can clean up um, with some drill work. But um, and, and our favorite drill, honestly, it, is what we call a Bernstein drill. Um, and what's great about Bernstein is it can be anything. So the Bernstein principle, you know, again, without boring everyone, is um, how the body organizes itself to achieve the ultimate goal of the task. So we use that Bernstein principle to our advantage a lot, and both on the pitching and the hitting side, but we, we actually have a set of Bernstein drills on the hitting side. So whatever the flaw might be, whether it's hitting the ball on the ground, not able to pull the ball, not being able to hit the ball the opposite field well, um, not able to turn well, whatever the, the flaw is that we see, we create a Bernstein drill to like counter that flaw or fight against that flaw. So a kid that doesn't turn very well um, and can't pull the ball, doesn't stay connected well through the turn, does, just doesn't have good mobility um, in his midsection to turn well, um, all of those types of things, we might do a, a dart drill, Bernstein drill, where we're really focusing on throwing them something that they can turn on really easily out in front uh, to get them to feel that turn, to feel that connection, staying connected a long time. And literally the goal of the drill is to pull the baseball with good flight and keep it fair. Um, again, that's all external cues so that we're not getting inside the kid's head too much with what his body's doing or mechanical type stuff. I try to, I try my hardest to get away from internal cues. Um, we have to do it at times, but we, we use the burn scene to try to stay external. Um, so I guess that's a really generic answer on the drill. Is we use 
Bernstein for pretty much any flaw. We'll just come up with a goal or a task that automatically corrects that flaw so that the player's not thinking about what his hips are doing, his pelvis is doing, his shoulders are doing, his hands are doing. Just try to stay off the body as much as possible. So um, hopefully that answers the question. But, I mean, it really everything starts with the ground. I know that's a boring answer. But it's just where we start with our program with everything. What do the feet do? How do they interact with the ground? And how does the body allow them through its ability to move? Um, how does the body allow them to get through that, that, whether it's going down the mound or whether it's moving forward into the front foot plant? You know, how well are they able to control their body through that? So that's kind of the main things we look for. And, uh, you know, our, our drill work is really try to keep it as simple as possible without getting into their head with their body as much as possible. Cool, guys. Really good stuff. And I'll ask this to you, Coach Hassie, and it's kind of a debate I've been arguing with myself and, and discussing with other coaches on the podcast, and it's this question. How much of a player's success, particularly a baseball player's success, is based just because they're a natural athlete or off their baseball skill, and I'll say this, Patrick Mahomes is the argument, Aaron Judge, that they're three-sport uh, athletes in high school and they were all-state. Are they good athletes because they played three sports, or are they, good, are they a three-sport athlete and all-state players just because they're just really good athletes? I've been telling the story on the podcast that Mike Trout in high school wanted to partake in a home run derby with his high school teammates, and they wouldn't let him because he was going to destroy them if he participated in it. And so they said, we'll let you participate if you bat from the other side of the plate, left-handed. Mike Trout does. He still wins the, the uh, home run derby. So how much of a player's success is just because they continuously use repetitions on their baseball skill or just because, you know what, they're just the better athlete? Uh, I can't wait till Jason answers this because he gets fired up about this one and he's had more conversations about this than anybody that I know. Um, and he likes the debate, so I hope he gets all fired up. But, um, man, you, you got to look at it reality so the reality is the physical makeup the muscle fibers in humans body it's not always the same with everybody so if you have a guy that's got more fast switch muscle fibers basically from birth um, through puberty that he just has more of those in him then he's pretty much um, he's just gonna have that extra gift that extra oomph, that uh, extra ability. So if if you take an athlete who doesn't have the same muscle twitch fibers, who maybe doesn't have the same IQ ability to consume information the same, um, the same player that is in the exact same environment, this exact same pitching coach, they're both six foot, they're both 200 pounds. If you take a guy who is more physically gifted, meaning they were gifted things, regardless of the effort, aside from circumstances, because that can play a whole other part, but from just the sheer effort they put in, if everything else was the same, I mean, if they were, I guess twins wouldn't have, they probably have the same makeup, but if, if all things considered are exactly the same and you have an athlete who was gifted with a physically, you know, just better body, then that player is going to be, you would assume, more successful. Um, so you, you have to look at that first, but you know, you've got hundreds of athletes, thousands of athletes in professional ranks in any sport. So I mean, you're not going to know all of that. We're not going to get to see Mike Trout's um, genetic makeup. We're gonna, not going to be able to see. I know Tim Ferriss, for all you four-hour workweek fans out there, did a test on himself. He does all kinds of tests. But he did a test where he actually um, got, I don't know if it was muscle fibers or some, he had gotten some pieces of his muscles to get, um, kind of evaluated in the lab to see what his muscle fiber makeup was. This is probably like four or five years ago. I listened to a podcast where he talked about it, but just to kind of dissect that, we're not going to get that from Mike Trout. We're not going to get that from most people. There's a lot of tests out there where you can test some of those things and even just sheer speed and a 60 time or whatever that is, or vertical. And you can just see that there's a better athlete. Um, but I mean, you can definitely take a better athlete that doesn't try as hard. And then you'll have a guy that, tries 10 times as hard and you know is able to be more successful but yeah it's the three the whole three sport athlete thing and i know jason will touch on that too is so i played 
three sports up until I got injured a handful of times and then it kind of made the excuse of I didn't want to play basketball anymore because I was a bench player. So I, I got decent minutes, but I just wasn't. I was looking around at guys and realizing, holy crap, they spent a lot of time playing basketball. My passion is just not there. Um, but I also went to a small school, so I could play football and be the starting quarterback. I could play baseball and be our ace pitcher. Um, but if I would have been to a bigger school, it might not have been the case. So there's so many circumstantial um, environmental factors that you have to take into account. So it's easy for Aaron Judge or a lot of these guys to say that I played three sports and that was why I was successful, but there's just so many other factors that play into each individual player's circumstance that, you know, if Aaron Judge, I don't know, there's just so many different things that they, that could happen. So I don't think it's, I, again, Jason's going to, he's more of the debate guy. I, I tend to talk in more practical terms and realistic terms and try not to debate too much because I'm like, well, let's look at the reality of the situation. And that's not always as fun. So I think it's just too complicated to say one way or the other, unfortunately. <laughs> All right, Coach Clymore, I'm looking forward to this answer. Let's hear, what do you think is more dependent on a ball player's success, their pure athleticism or the amount of time that they use on their baseball repetition? Oh, boy. Um, I can't wait to get to the multiple score debate at the end of this question, but Obviously, the answer to that question is the, the player that moves the best, um, whether he did that out of the womb, um, this pure natural raw athleticism, or whether that's something that's developed through playing multiple sports, um, the player that moves the best is obviously the one that is easiest for most instructors to work with. They um, tend to pick up things quicker, uh, not necessarily mentally, but they're just able to do things physically easier without as much effort and, and work behind the scenes to do that. So, I mean, having a good mover is obviously what, at the end of the day, we all want to, our athletes to be. Um, that's not reality, unfortunately. So then that comes into your question of if you have a normal person, and that's where Scott, <laughs> Coach Assey was, um, I think, kind of alluding to this, is that there's so many variables here that if you have a normal human that doesn't just roll out of bed and, and dominate in three sports, which there are people out there like that. Aaron Judge was you know, probably one of those guys. Mike Trout probably one of those guys. I just don't think you can use those guys as examples. I, I think those are outliers. I don't think those are normal people. Uh, I'm not saying they didn't work hard. I'm just, they genetically um, have better muscle twitch fibers. They're, they're just better athletes from the get-go, better movers. So outliers excluded and using normal people, um, I have a system that I'm kind of using with my son that I did some research on before he was ever born that has kind of led me down the path of how I'm handling him. And it goes all the way back to where he's 11 years old now, back when he was three years old. Um, I, I heard from several different studies and some research that was done that you want to play your multiple sports at a young age. Um, and that creates the ability to move better and creates better proprioception, which is just a body awareness of how the body moves in space and an awareness to that. So the, the more stuff you can do at a really young age, and, and I got my son into something called the Ninja program when he was three years old. He did it from about three years old to six years old. And that program was, had nothing to do with martial arts. It was more of the uh, basically teaching him. He would run up walls. He would do car wheels. He would jump on the trampoline. He would do obstacle courses. Um, the program was invented here in Indianapolis by the lady that ran the studio that he did it at. And she ended up kind of blowing it up all over the country. But we were just lucky enough that we stumbled onto it at a really young age with him. And... I'm convinced that he's, he's an exceptional athlete, 
And I'm convinced that doing that ninja program at that young age is a big reason why. Um, he just learned how to feel his body in space and do a lot of different things at a very young age. So I think that is hugely important. He also plays football and hockey in addition to baseball. So I'm all on board for the multiple sports at young ages to create really good movement patterns and, and, and that spatial awareness with the athletes. However, once once you get to high school, I think I have a totally different opinion and I don't think it's politically correct. I think you need to start to specialize as you get into high school. If you're a normal human. Now, if you're Mike Trout and you're Aaron Judge or you're Mahomes and you can roll out of bed and be the number one basketball player, the number one football player, the number one baseball player, and you're D1 and all three of those, those are different people. Um, and they can play multiple sports for as long as they want because they their physical skills are such that they don't need to specialize. But for every one of those cases, I think there's 10 or 15 cases where a normal human being who wants to play college baseball or professional baseball would never make it if they didn't get the reps in once they got through puberty, not through puberty, but, you know, into high school where they were well into puberty, then they start to focus in on a specific sport, whether that's baseball or football or whatever that sport is. Because I just don't think regular people can divide their time and their reps up with all these other sports that they're playing and still stay elite enough at whatever the sport is that they want to go to the next level in, to play it at a high level at the next level. Um, that's just my opinion. I'm not going to give you any type of medical backgrounds on that. I'm sure people with that knowledge would argue with me till they're blue in the face. I just, I just think that once you get to high school, if you're a regular person, you have to rep the heck out of whatever the sport is if you want to play at the next level. Um, I'm also not a big do-it-for-fun guy. Um, I, I think competition and sports and games, um, fun is baked into those. Like, like You don't do them if you weren't going to have fun with them. Like, uh, for example, I, I'll play Connect Four with my son because I enjoy playing Connect Four. It's fun. Um, but I'm still trying to beat his rear end at it. Right? I'm still trying to be competitive and, and good, and I'm never going to uh, take it easy on him. Or, you know, so I'm still trying to compete, but having fun's already baked in. So people that say, oh, I just play basketball for fun, or I just play football for fun, I, I've never understood those answers. Um, because, of course, you're playing it for fun. That's why you play it. But at the end of the day, I'm trying to go somewhere with it. I'm trying to, you know, get to a next level with it. I'm trying to get to the light at the end of the tunnel with it. Like, to me, everything you do is a journey. And fun should always be part of the journey. So I think that's kind of a cop-out answer. Like, where are you trying to go with this? Like, what? You're on a train heading somewhere, and this, this thing that you're doing is the train that you're on. So where, what's the destination? Where are you heading? And everyone's got a different answer to that question. Um, I think people who say, I have no desire to play sports in college, sure, go play basketball, football, and baseball, and get the most out of them socially and developmentally as you can because you have no intention of playing them at the next level. But if you're an average athlete or above-average athlete, you want to play college baseball, uh, I think there comes a time where if you're spending your time in a gym shooting a basketball or on a football field or on a wrestling mat or on the hockey rink, um, I just think that's probably not the best use of your time at that point. So um, definitely a, a topic I love talking about. I love the debate this topic because I think a lot of people say things out of political correctness and not common sense. Um, and I think that when you hear stories of, people that play multiple sports, they are the outliers 
And I think we've got to stop talking about the outliers and start talking about what most of us are, which are normal humans, and what's the best path for most normal humans. Um, I think that's where the debate needs to be. It's awesome, and particularly I watched my best friend in high school. He played basketball. Basketball was his big thing. He scored over 1,500 points and went on to play college basketball. He also played baseball and football through like middle school and the beginning of high school, but he didn't play either one his junior year. He didn't play football at all in high school until his senior year. He tried, comes out for football his senior year. Um, he's a really good athlete. Shockingly, he becomes an all-conference. That's the school record for interceptions in a season. Plays basketball, dominates, scores like 25 points a game like he usually did because basketball was his thing. Then comes back out to baseball after not playing at all his junior year and became an all-conference shortstop. So to me it was, there's a lot of kids who were spending all summer getting better at football and baseball, and he just showed up and was an all-conference player, and they sat behind him. So how much of it is actually you're working hard, and how much of it is you're just the better athlete? So it's always a fun, a fun discussion to have and fun debate to have, and I still don't know which side I'd necessarily lie on because if both sides have points, but it's still just it's fascinating to talk about. And so I'll, I'll end this podcast with this question for the both of you. And it's an either-or, and I'll start with you first, Coach Hasey. What would you rather be only able to use during the offseason? Would you rather only be able to have your players use the weight room or only be allowed to do skill development? Ooh, can I do a follow-up question? What do you mean skill development, like baseball specific? Yes, like skill development, like you're throwing bullpens, or if you're an infielder, you're taking ground balls, or hitting, you're hitting off the tee, you're going live. But only either-or. Without question, weight room. There is an unbelievable amount that you can do in the weight room to improve how you move, the strength, your stability, your mobility, your intensity, uh, your work ethic, your ability to push through challenges, focus in on things, zone out distractions, have an understanding of a long-term approach, um, failure in every session that you have in the weight room, um, stretching, uh, the understanding the importance of that camaraderie working teamwork with I mean you can accomplish all of those things in the weight room and move better and there's a really good chance if you do all those things you're going to show up much like your buddy and although he I don't know if he was in the weight room as much but you're going to show up at the end of the day when practices start for season and people will be like holy crap I mean what who did you work with what instructor I was just in the weight room I mean you learn so much from the weight room so 100% weight room easiest answer Awesome. And ironically, you say my buddy in the weight room. My buddy did not live in the weight room. He probably weighed about 160 pounds, benched about 135 pounds, and squatted about 200 pounds, but was still the phenomenal athlete that he was and could dominate on any arena, field, court that he was on just because he was a better athlete. And what about you, Coach Klein? More skill development or weight room? Yeah, this one, um, at the end, of, I'm going to agree with Coach Athlete, but I'm probably going to take a different path to get there. So, I was a guy who uh, was a, built, a big skill acquisition guy. I love to um, do the sport as my way of practicing. So I would take a lot of ground balls. I would take a lot of swings. I would throw a lot. I would shoot a lot of free throws. I would um, do whatever the physical things were in the sports that I played. I played hockey, basketball, and baseball. I would always enjoy the skill acquisition stuff with that. I hated the weight room. To this day, I hate the weight room. I don't like to lift. I don't like to stretch. I, I don't like to work out. Um, none of that has ever been enjoyable to me. And I think a lot of it goes back to what I just said. To me, I could never wrap my head around where the competition was there. I'm a score guy. So when I go into the weight room and I kill myself bench pressing something, like I don't, who did I beat? What was the score? I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around that. I couldn't figure that out. To me, I've got to look up at the scoreboard and know I'm dominating you or you're dominating me. And then that, that's the enjoyment I get out of competition. I couldn't ever tie the weight room to competition, so therefore I couldn't get the enjoyment out of it that, that some people do. And I realize now that there's a lot of self-competition going on there. Um, and I just, I guess I just didn't have the imagination at that age to, to see that. So, me coming up, I would have gone with the skill development route, and I did go that route. However, now that I train athletes, 
Um, the weight room is by far the easy answer to that question. For all the reasons that Coach Asu said, um, you have a better mover, you have a better athlete, and the weight room is where the, the athlete becomes a better mover. So what we, what we develop in the weight room, we take to the field to, de to develop our skills or to acquire our skills. So without the weight room, without the ability to move better, it's really hard to go do the physical acquiring of the skill. Like to me, you almost can't do one without the other. So by far, the weight room has to be the answer to that question, I think. Um, but 30 years ago, I would have never answered that question that way. And I hated the weight room. Um, so maybe that's both answers, I guess. But um, there's no question that today, that wraps it up for the Coaches Roundtable podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. If you would be interested in being part of an episode yourself, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Coach Crato, K-R-A-T-O. Thank you.